Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, I'm so glad you could join me today because we get the chance to speak with Julia Rucklidge, who's a clinical psychologist at the University of Canterbury. And with her, we're going to have a conversation about nutrients and mental health. It's a really fascinating one. And here's an excerpt from that conversation. Do these micronutrients work? We've got people obviously struggling with um, mood disorders and ADHD here in my community. That's what we were studying at the time. And why don't we see whether or not these nutrients can help them? Mm. That seemed like such a, like, yeah, why not? It's a scientific question. And as scientists, we have to um, run the types of studies that um, answer important questions, but also if they contravene our current way of thinking, who cares? That's our we're we're critics and conscience of society. That's what we should be doing. And so it was what it was such a eye opener for me was go you know, just naively thinking, okay, we'll run some trials. And then I just had obstacle after obstacle after obstacle for doing our research. And it continues like to this day. Hmm. And it's it's been quite surprising because to me, all I'm doing is answering a scientific question. Do these things work? So just before we dive into that conversation with Julia, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who's a listener and a subscriber, and those of you who continue to tell your friends and family about this show. It really does help to get the word out. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and it's the first one that you've listened to, you might want to hit subscribe because there's dozens and dozens of other interviews that you can access in the podcast app that you're using. Also, this show is coming out every week with a diverse range of people doing interesting things with their lives. So if you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check the back catalog out as well, as there's literally dozens and dozens of interviews, often going for about an hour each. And that gives us a chance to go a bit deeper with people and find out about where they're from, what they're doing, and most importantly, why they're doing it. Now let's get into this interview with Julia about the link between mental health and nutrients. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Julia Recklidge, who's a clinical psychologist at the University of Canterbury. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Um, Julia, on this podcast, what we do is we talk about people's um, backgrounds and where they're from, and then we talk about what it is that they're doing now. So what I always like to do is just ask somebody, where are you from? (laughs) And if you could just give us that background, and then we'll work in, because I'm really fascinated to learn about the research that you're doing. Yeah. And um, find out more about the connection between food and mental health. Sure. So I'm originally from Toronto, Canada. I grew up there, and then um, I did. I've, I've I've traveled a lot, and and that probably is not surprising given that I've just ended up in New Zealand. Um, but I did my training for psychology at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada, and that is a significant. Um, piece of why I do what I do right now. But um, at the time, it wasn't relevant to the issue of nutrition and mental health. But that's where my story starts mm. is there. But um, and then I ended up uh, leaving uh, after I got my PhD, my degree, I went to um, Toronto and spent a couple of years there doing a postdoc at the sick hospital for sick children. And then I came to New Zealand. Okay. And just going back even further, like your childhood, yes. where which was it in this in the city? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, inner city of Toronto. Yeah. 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 And what was that like growing up in Toronto? Uh, well, I mean, you don't know anything else. I mean, it's a big city. 
And, um, but I, I, I grew up in a middle-class family and my father was a, an academic as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess not surprising that the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. Is that something you think that you realized early on that 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 would be a career that you might want to pursue because of him or no not a joke (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so no it's not something you're thinking about at the time but then you um perhaps as you get older and you're you know as I went through university and then got to the stage of well what do I do now after I had an undergraduate degree and I did an undergraduate degree in neurobiology and really your options at that stage are things like either going in for medicine or going in and getting going into graduate school I actually was always drawn to do psychology and the silly thing about why I didn't do an undergraduate degree in psychology was actually that I had a Um, a scholarship from the government of Canada to study science and psychology is not classified as science at McGill University which is where I did my undergraduate degree so Um. I did something as close as I could which was neurobiology and then I and I um, wanted to go into clinical psychology and then uh, applied and was actually really fortunate to get in because I didn't actually have the right qualifications. I see. <laughs> so, Interesting. Yeah. So that early um, knowing that that's what you wanted to actually get into. Yeah, always where, interested where, in there. Yeah, where did, where did that come from, do you think? Like, can you trace it back, you know, when you're in high school or, you know, early on? Was right. it an interest? Or? Um, it's an, I mean, it was fundamentally an interest because I was exposed to it through my mother who struggles a lot with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And so I was pretty acutely um, familiar with... Uh, what it's like to um, struggle with anxiety, and I think that's what probably that's where the probably interest started was mm. just trying to understand the, her struggles and watching her go through in the in the eighties, the seventies and eighties, the types of treatments that she was receiving back then. I mean, I, I it it certainly concerns me greatly actually the way she was treated, and I think she w- could have had a far better outcome in terms of not ending up on, you know, on disability and other things, if she'd had um, better options available to her, to be honest, because Mm. the options that were available to her back then were just not good enough. Mm. And I guess reflecting back, you can see with the benefit of hindsight, you know, what it was like at that time. So was that, in in what I'm hearing, it was sort of in your high school years that this was forming as an interest for you? Or? I think so, yeah. Psychology, I mean, just that idea of why do people have mental illness and was always a curiosity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Always a curiosity of, you know, trying to understand that, but more from a biological perspective, because I was very strong in science and trying to understand that. What was the, 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 the psychological, the, the, the biological underpinnings of, of these conditions as opposed to the psychological. But then I um, started to take psych- psychology courses at university and then I got quite interested in that side of it mm. but I kind of then I've ended up more in the biology now again I'm back right really, because <laughs> nutrition is really about the biology right it's not so it's kind of a nice um loop it's, I've returned you've, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, what you start out with it's funny in life like that isn't it like yeah. sometimes you start with something and then go over here for a while and That's then right. end up back at yeah the, well I think it's it's not surprising because I in a way I'm not I, some people who go through psychology from the beginning, they're they're really wedded and they're they're embedded in it. Whereas I I'm not I don't feel that same allegiance I suppose to psychology. I'm just interested in the reduction of the burden of mental illness. And if that meant that I had to come back to looking at other roots, that's what I've done. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel that I'm abandoning my clinical psychology 
training, it's relevant. But I've, I've come to the conclusion that I think that if we're going to reduce the burden of mental illness, we're not going to achieve it one to one. And that's been uh, sort of that's something I've really come to appreciate um, more recently, like even over the last even, you know, last year was, wow, you know what? Just, uh, you know, for us to, as a society, to just say, we, you know, we just need to train more psychologists. Um, we need more mental health workers. And that's really where a lot of the emphasis has been mm. in the discussion with the government over the mental health inquiry is just we need more resources. We need more resources. And you just think, you know, in order to get the appropriate resources to meet the needs of our community, we're going to probably need to double it. And how do you double it? How do you go from, say, we have 3,000 or so um, psychologists registered in New Zealand. How are you going to go from that to 6,000? We train 60 psychologists a year in New Zealand. To double that, you can't, I mean, it's, you just go, that's going to take us three or four decades, unless we, mm-hmm. you know, we could probably try to, to you know, bring them in, like I was brought into New Zealand, but all, you know, all the other countries are struggling as well. So Yeah, yeah Moore's Law doesn't apply where you double every 18 months or whatever yeah right? it's not gonna <laughs> it doesn't so, work that way so if we're if we we reflect on it in that from that perspective i think we all need to sit feel it just uncomfortable about that's not really a a, a, a way forward that is reasonable mm. and um even though it, it sounds reasonable oh just give us more money more money more money i think we've got to start really doing a, a major fundamental shift in how we look at health um, because just thinking we can keep people just doing what they're doing, eating badly, not exercising, having all of these um, risk factors, uh, you know, just glaring at us in the face, ignoring them and thinking we're just going to have lots of lots of health professionals who are going to address our health issues Uh, when they arise, because they're going to arise if we continue to live the way we are. Mm. And so even just listening to the demand and the need for more nurses, again, you think, if people were living a healthier life, we wouldn't need as many nurses. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I mean, that seems to me... Yeah, so you're talking about a paradigm shift, really, of, you know, not just the, let's get out more Band-Aids to fix this. It's actually... Let's stop what's causing yeah, the, 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 exactly. the source of the problem. Absolutely, and yeah. I, I think that if we don't do that, we you, you we can't afford it. Mm. The escalating costs we can't afford it. So, mm. I, this may not be a popular way to think about it, but I think if we ignore this message, uh, I, you know, I don't know how we're going to pay for it. How, yeah. how your taxes going to have to go up and up and up? Yeah, there's major um, consequences. Isn't there? there are major consequences to yeah. just ignoring what's really um, the elephant in the room. Mm. Well, let's circle back to that. I want to go back to university days for a little bit. Sure. And, and then we'll come back to this topic because okay. this is the it's a fascinating one. And I really want to understand what your research has been and things. But I also want to get a bit more behind the scenes of how you ended up in New Zealand, for example. But before we ask that, um, you were studying um, and then you moved into this new area yeah um what was that like for you that shift from sort of biology and and things to psychology Uh, oh just psychology yeah (laughs) um i think it it was it no problem like in terms of that shift because i was going into the area that i loved about psychology so i didn't end up doing a, a lot of the courses that 
I can't say that I would have really enjoyed in psychology, mm-hmm. um, you know, like cognition and things like that. that I, I think some of my, my colleagues might cringe at that. But um, so I went directly into the area that I was passionate about and enjoyed and found very interesting, which was, was specifically about psychological and psychiatric disorders. So it was a, a fine fit. There was, a, there was no major adjustment other than um, when I started graduate school, my colleagues, my fellow graduate students certainly knew a lot more, but it wasn't hard to keep up. It's not, Mm. it wasn't that difficult. I I guess it's like anything in life. If you love or if you are passionate about a subject, then you'll quickly get up to speed and enjoy it. That wasn't a problem. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. So we are here in New Zealand. How did you end up here? (laughs) Um, So I, as I said, I've traveled a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, that's probably not surprising. My parents are from the UK, United Kingdom, and they uh, moved to Canada and um, in this the late this 1960s and you know have four children in Canada so we've got you know four Canadians born to uh, English parents my parents eventually have moved back to the UK independently of each other mm-hmm. um, but they're now back there and um, so what what was going on in the 60s that took them from the UK oh, to Canada because there would have there was the, uh, just that's how universities were seeking able to mm-hmm. fill posts it's like in new zealand a yeah. lot of posts get filled by people from overseas the mm. same thing must have been going on in canada there was an influx of people coming from the uk to yeah. fill the vacancies in fact a lot of the people in geology were english yeah. so so i was and it's you know it's, in a way it's sad because my exposure was to the english heritage english people english families I didn't really immerse into Canadian culture as much as, you yeah. know, other people because we'd go back to England and we'd visit my grandparents and mm-hmm. my relatives. And so I wasn't even spending summers in Canada. So I was mm. living there. I was going to school. I was going to a French schools. So I was learning French and, and then not super connecting with the country. I still feel Canadian, but it's, I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I just, we weren't connecting as much as you yeah. probably could have. So, it sounds like you were an international. Yeah. Uh, so and I, I have to say I'm the same because we moved to New Zealand when I was seven years old, uh-huh. but I've lived in six different countries. Right. So it's kind of you, your identity does become a little bit fractured, I guess. That's, that's <laughs> it, fractured. So, yeah. so I, I travel. I went to the UK actually for part of my undergraduate degree. I went to the University of Bristol, for, mm. and that, and when I was there, I met my my to my my current my husband, mm-hmm. the only the only husband current that I one, <laughs> and um, he was a Canadian from uh, Calgary, and he was studying law at the University of Reading, and he went to law school with a really good friend of mine who had gone from Canada to England, ah, and so we ended up going on skiing trip back in 1990 or I think around then um, and that's when I met him was through the ski trip and so we you know it was um, we stayed we stayed in touch we became friends and um, and then when I I then traveled for a year I went to Asia and then uh, and while I was there I I was applying for graduate school and um, and got in to the, you know surprisingly to be honest this clinical program at the University of Calgary and and that's when I thought goodness I don't know anybody in Calgary and then that's when I thought, oh, yeah, I do. I know this guy. I, this I remember this one person. This one person. So, <laughs> from that ski trip a couple that, years ago. Exactly. So yeah. I contacted him and he said, do you, you know, do you have anywhere to stay when you get here? I'm like, no, I've got a map. And that's right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. and I'd never been to the west, the, uh, the west of Canada before, actually. Yeah. Um, 
So that's yeah, and so th that's where that started. It, and, and so any, so I'm you know we are both travelers, and we as I said we ended up back in Toronto um, for my for my internship and my postdoc, and then after three years in Toronto, we both just wanted to go somewhere that was completely different, and mm -hmm. and, and not that it was for you know an extended lifetime, but it was more of a let's go somewhere where you know whoever gets a job first and the other one gets a sabbatical you know a year off and uh this job came up at the university of calgary uh, Can canterbury um huh. looking for a child clinical psychologist huh. so uh so i thought why not apply and it was actually really easy okay. see what happens yeah, yeah see what happens and i was still not sure i wanted to go into academia i have to be honest like i was because the training is is one where you can you get a PhD, so you can go into academia. You can also practice. So mm. I was on the fence of, do I want to practice? Do I want to go into academia? And the 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 draw card for me for this job here was that I was able to do both. So you can practice for a day a week mm -hmm. as part of your 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 position and so that was actually the big draw card was mm. to come and I could do both in the end I've given that side up mostly mm -hmm. and I only see people in a clinical capacity in the context of research I see yeah, yeah. so um but I don't regret it yeah I think it's it's been the right thing and again going back to what I was saying earlier around reducing the burden of mental illness you can't reduce the burden of mental illness by seeing people one-to-one. -one. Mm. The only way you're going to do that is by reaching people through your research. And then you can have hopefully a far greater impact, if, of course, if your research findings are mm. useful. And I certainly think that even up to what we have done so far, my reach is in the thousands. And I would never have accomplished that one-to-one. Mm. -one. Right. Yeah. No, I so. understand. So when when did you move to New Zealand then? It was 2000, it? September 2000. Okay, yeah. yeah. And what did you know about New Zealand before you came? Nothing, not much. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> not much at all. Um, I'd heard it was a lovely place to go visit. I'd heard yeah. it was a you know, great country, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, so... I, and so it, it, it just... I, I came over for the interview and thought, oh, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. We don't know. You just go well, that's the thing in life, isn't it? Yeah. I just always like to ask these questions because uh, we're all on journeys, you know, and what yeah. is it that led one person to Christchurch, New Zealand versus mm. Calgary versus other that's places? Right. And, yeah. you know, it's those, um, you know, the opportunities there. And I often think making the decision to go somewhere mm -hmm. justifies that decision. That's but true. You can, what, you can sit there in limbo for a long time wondering which choice should I do, but then eventually it's just gotta yeah. go with it so. well we went with it and um i don't remember it being a very difficult decision to make and that's probably because we weren't feeling that we were committing to anything yeah not for long term and it was uh, you know for us we loved the outdoors we love uh, my husband and i like to go hiking a lot and uh, we were tired of being stuck on the highway in toronto going nowhere and um and this just seems like a great opportunity being able to do more outdoors things so. yeah yeah. Oh, that's great. That's a beautiful yeah. place. That's for sure. So um, let's talk a little bit about your research and sure. what you're doing. When you first arrived, was it um, similar to what you're doing now or has it evolved over time? Yeah, very different. <laughs> how, yes. how did you, I guess, build up first how you got into doing what you're doing now? Sure. So I did my PhD. Um, uh, and uh, OK, well, let's go. Let's back up a little bit more. 
probably one of the reasons I was lucky to get into clinical psychology without a psychology degree was because I, um, to get into a clinical, into a graduate program in clinical psychology, you actually have to get chosen by a, um, a, an academic. And so as opposed to here where you apply, you get into the professional program and then you find a supervisor. There you have to, a supervisor has to essentially choose you and then, and then you get into the program. So you see mm. that it's a little bit yeah, different. Sure. So I was chosen to study at the University of Calgary by uh, uh, Professor Bonnie Kaplan. And she, um, pr- I think she was actually drawn to the fact that I didn't have a psychology degree because she was quite into more biologically based um, research anyway. So mm. that was probably a good fit for her. So mm. I think that that actually ended up being a plus right. rather than a minus that yep. here was somebody who was a little bit different, didn't have a psychology degree. So, um, so, and therefore I ended up, you end up doing research on what she was doing research on. And so she was doing research on ADHD. And so that's what I did my master's and my PhD on was looking at ADHD. So I ended up going into an area of looking at women with ADHD, which back in the 1990s was, was one of the first investigations into looking at women with ADHD and, um, and found that there were a lot of challenges for having these symptoms along in, in females. And then I moved to, um, as I said, to Toronto and did a postdoc with Rosemary Tannock, who also does ADHD and learning disabilities research. And so we extended some of the work I'd been doing as my PhD and looked at adolescents with ADHD. And so when I came here, and it was all, all, all none of it was treatment work. It was all under, trying to understand their things like, um, well, some of their psychological uh uh, context, but also their um, the, some of the challenges, like the, what we call executive function, so their working memory and their ability, how quickly they process information, and so those, what yeah, those ex- what we call executive function um, systems. So, mm. um, so I did my postdoc on that area, and then came here, and then extended it into looking at mood disorders, and so. Uh, looking at uh, specifically bipolar disorder with the overlap with ADHD. At that time, there was a lot of um, uh, controversy over the idea that bipolar disorder could exist in children, um, but it had come out as a as something potentially relevant in the sort of late 1990s. Uh, still irks me today that you would we we think that kids have bipolar disorder, but that was what was happening at that time. So I thought I would do a little bit of research on that topic. And um, it, but so around the same time, my my PhD supervisor Bonnie was looking was had been approached by families from southern Alberta, Canada who were treating themselves with nutrients and they had serious mental health con- uh, problems like bipolar disorder like um, psychosis and depression and uh, certainly in the first instance she uh, dismissed them and what they were saying which was that the their these family members were getting better so um, they convinced her to do some research on it and uh, so she did a very small clinical trial and uh, and found that giving people micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, and I think at that point there, were, there was there's a time when they used it as a liquid, but eventually it became capsules. And they found that people who had bipolar disorder could show a reduction in their symptoms associated with that mood disorder 
alongside a reduction in medications, so which is a pretty substantial finding. And so she uh, published this work in the early part of, I think, 2000 or 2001, and got quite a bit of um, media associated with that, as you can imagine, because mm-hmm. it's pretty unusual to find a new treatment for um, something as chronic as, as bipolar disorder. And... Um, the after that, so she was about she was she was in the process of launching a big randomized control, control trial, which is the type of trial you need to sort of prove that the effect was not just due to a placebo effect. And then Health Canada shut her down. So um, hmm. that's a big story in itself. Right. <laughs> um, but it's basically associated with the um, you know their concerns that. You, you know, people with bipolar disorder must be on medications and that there was no way that a micronutrient formula could possibly treat mm. serious conditions um, and that the companies that were selling and making this product were not allowed to make therapeutic tr- claims, and they were, and so they just essentially uh, prevented and banned the sale of these nutrients in mm. Canada for quite a number of years. So I guess because what we talked about before, you know, paradigm shifts... Yes, like really they're what, hard. They're hard, yeah. <laughs> yeah they're they're <laughs> and, very hard. And especially if there's stakeholders and vested interests and that's, that's people right. have always done it this way and we understand how to treat this particular that's, way of doing things. Yeah. And obviously, disruption is kind of a buzzword at the moment in technology, but that's right. disruption in terms of health-related things is also, I, yeah. in some ways, it's even harder to get across the line it because really people's is. lives, you know, potentially this would be the argument, this is people's lives at stake. Exactly. And as opposed to the new iPhone or something. So That's right. Yeah. That's right. And and people are bought into the model. Mm. And and as I, I, you know, I was bought into the model. I was, the, I did my undergraduate degree in neurobiology. That's, right. I learned all about how drugs worked as part of that degree I learned about uh, you know wh- how we understood mental illnesses as being biologically based that there was this chemical imbalance that mm-hmm. was causing these disorders and that by giving the drug they would that would correct the chemical imbalance and they would get better mm. and it made perfect sense to me i i mean that was one of the things that excited me about go, uh, my degree in neurobiology was learning about this and going wow we have the potential that in 10 years neuro, you know we'll have cured mental mm. illness because the cost of the medicines will come down and, right. and we'll be able to give them out to yeah. everybody who yeah. needs them and that's yeah, right right but what we weren't paying attention to, and this is what I started to pay attention to about you know 12 or 13 years ago, was that not enough people were getting well mm. by this approach. And that's what, you know, that took a long time for me to kind of get my head around. But, um, I, you know, if I looked at my own data, mm. I, and I hadn't seen it before. Like, and that was the, you know, the interesting thing. I was completely blind to this obvious thing in all of our data, which is that, we were collecting data on people with ADHD who were medicated, um, who were receiving the best treatments, and you know that you know that we can offer, mm-hmm. and they were they would always be more impaired than our control group. Hmm. So they would always show more symptoms, more problems in all aspects of their lives, and 
I would, we would interpret it that it was to do with the ADHD that, that, you know, and we would say, oh yeah, so these, obviously these people with ADHD also have all these other problems and, and, and um, relative to people who don't have ADHD. But the elephant in the room was that, hold on, if the treatments are working, they should be identical to people who don't have ADHD, right? Right, right? Because if the treatment is working, then it should alleviate the symptoms and everything should be okay. So that's, that was kind of an aha moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what got me interested in doing this work was, was, was that it's, you know, bon- there was Bonnie who couldn't do the research in Canada because Health Canada shut her down. She came and visited us in New Zealand and spent a month here. She kept telling me about the data. I have great respect for her. And ultimately, it just seems like a reasonable scientific question to say, do these micronutrients work? We've got people obviously struggling with um, mood disorders and ADHD here in my community. That's what we were studying at the time. And why don't we see whether or not these nutrients can help them? Mm. That seemed like a, such a, like, yeah, why not? It's a scientific question. And as scientists, we have to um, run the types of studies that um, answer important questions, but also if they contravene our current way of thinking, who cares? That's our, we're, we're critics and conscience of society. That's what we should be doing. And so it was, it, it was such a eye opener for me was go, you know, just naively thinking, okay, we'll run some trials. And then I just had obstacle after obstacle after obstacle for doing our research. And it continues like to this day. Hmm. And it's, it, it's been quite surprising because to me, all I'm doing is answering a scientific question. Do these things work? We spend a lot of money on supplements as a society, and and there there's very little evidence for many of them. And it seemed to me like a, I was I was providing a good societal benefit of, of finding out if they actually worked. I mean, the, I guess the thing is the fact is that we found that they did work was disappointing for some people, I suppose, and, and, and irritant. I'm not sure. We, yeah. But you would think that you, we would be embraced. And if it had been a drug, um, would we have had the troubles that we've right. had? If you'd had the research and said, this is the miracle cure, yeah. this is the drug that will, that, yeah. that will fix all the problems, as yeah. opposed to actually it's more basic and it's about the nutrients it's and about the nutrition. what goes in and what comes out That's and right. things. So you've been doing that research now since the early 2000s, it sounds um, like, or since, when did that uh, well, begin? Well, I, I always struggle to remember because it took us so long to get our first clinical trial off the ground because we right. were turned down by ethics and so I had to appeal and so we went through a whole um, big long process. But it was around 2000. 2006, 2007, that mm-hmm. we first, I first started to okay. really do the serious hard work of applying for ethics, getting the trial trials designed and mm-hmm. going. So at the time of recording this, about a decade. Yeah, about a, a decade. A, a yeah. little, yeah, a little yeah. bit longer. So um, can you just outline some of the results that you found? Yeah. Um, and then I'd love to talk through a little bit about um, what that means or what it could mean um, sure. for people. So we've... I mean, we've done a lot of different types of trials. We've done um, uh, open, what we call open label, which is where you just give nutrients to people and you see what happens to them and you, everybody knows what, what they're taking. Um, that's sort of where you start. Actually, you start with case studies before that. And, mm-hmm. and we had a few case studies that were really interesting and found that um, these people were getting better with nutrients. We then did open label and we found remarkable um, effects of these nutrients, particularly on mood. And I think that's a theme that goes through all of our research. 
Um, and then uh, we did some, then, then I eventually um, uh, designed a randomized control trial, which is the type of trial that you have to do uh, in order for people to take take you seriously. Mm. I'm not a big fan of randomized control trials because there's a lot of limitations associated with them. And I don't think people really understand that part of it. But because we're trying so hard to be taken seriously by the medical community, they take randomized control tri- trials seriously in RCT. And so we ran our trials like a drug trial. Mm-hmm. So blinded, people didn't know what they were taking. Pharmacy was was dealing with the, you know, the, the allocation to the different conditions so that we didn't know as the investigators. The statistician who analyzed our data was, in, was blind to what group people had been assigned to. So it was done absolutely beautifully. But the additional thing that we did that no other drug that had hasn't been done in the drug company side of things is that our funding did not come from the companies that made the products that we were studying. And that is a, a huge shift away from what is typically being done. And Bonnie actually was the one who started that. And she said, if we're going to be taken seriously, we cannot be funded by the industry. And so we've taken that stance now for 10 years, and that's been a really important part of our work. It makes getting money really hard mm-hmm. um, and funding the work really hard, but it has been a, it's so essential because that's the first re- thing that they'll knock you down on, is that if you do find benefit, it'll be, oh, it's because it was industry funded, and so they must have manipulated the results. Well, you can't say that about our work because it wasn't. We don't have any relationships, financial relationships with the, the companies. So, um, so, so in terms of going back to the findings, we we were we we got to this ADHD study that was our first RCT was looking at the effects on adults with ADHD who also had mood dysregulation as well. As I said, that's really one of our primary findings is improvement in mood. Um, and and then w- we got that one off the ground, and and it was hard work getting off the ground in terms of getting money and getting it through ethics. And then the earthquake happened. And you just think, goodness, nobody wants this work to, <laughs> work to be done. You know, Bonnie had had her 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 RCT shut down and by Health Canada for something like six years, so they prevented her from doing that work. Here I was in New Zealand, and it was you know it was a, an earthquake. Um, so meanwhile, we did some work on looking at the effects of nutrients on stress, and we found that that was it was actually very helpful post post earthquake on helping people overcome the stress associated with living through all of those earthquakes in 2011. Mm. Um, so we actually ended up doing another RCT at the same time. And that was, you know, a, a un- incredible. And in, if you think about what we achieved, because we, the university was closed for business in the sense that we weren't, the department of psychology was closed. That whole building was closed for three months. And we were running this study out of, porticoms and, and all of that stuff. So it was uh, an interesting time. But we finished that one. We saw some great effects of reduction of post-traumatic stress symptoms um, from 65% down to 19% with a one-month intervention with nutrients. It was mm-hmm. really quite remarkable. And we compared it to people who had gone for treatment as usual, that is, in the community, and there was no change for that group. Mm-hmm. In the adults with ADHD, we found some really um, robust findings of um, improvement in ADHD symptoms as well as in emotional regulation. We've then done other studies on insomnia, good effects on sleep. We've had 
we've done studies with kids with anxiety, good effects with mm-hmm. um, reduction of anxiety, ADHD with kids. We've um, now replicated and published in, uh, another RCT with children with ADHD. And the, 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 the finding there has been about mood regulation. These kids are far more regulated and, and less aggressive, not so much of an effect in ADHD symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that sort of is a nutshell. Yeah. It's not. So there's, so there's a real variety of studies that you've done, yeah. always looking at the effect of the nutrients. That's on right. The, on different. So can we just unpack what you mean when you say nutrients? Nutrients. So we give um, our participants vitamins and minerals uh, in a pill form at doses that are more than what you would typically get out of your diet, mm-hmm. um, but not at a toxic mega dose level. So um, that's important because we don't want to harm our participants. Right. <laughs> and we've collected a lot of data on safety, and I feel really confident that at least in the short term, we are not causing harm. People are not reporting significant side effects, so that's been a really positive part of it. Um, so um, where were we going? Mm. I'm just curious about what the nutrients actually the, are. Yeah, that's you right. Know, like if I, go, okay, if so I go into the supermarket that's after right. this interview and yes. I buy some blueberries and some oranges yes. and like what is it that we're talking about yeah. or is it something more complicated well you'd have to t- you'd have to eat like tw- 20 or so oranges I think to get the amount of vitamin C for example that we're giving right so that, as I said they're in more than what you get out of a daily diet but they are your essential vitamins and minerals so vitamin your B vitamins mm-hmm. vitamin D vitamin A right. and then your essential minerals and that there's a whole there's about 16 of those there's mm-hmm. zinc and magnesium and phosphorus and calcium and mm. um, iodine and selenium. So mm. your your whole spectrum yeah. of, of minerals as well. Mm. Um, in order, like if you, I certainly don't want your listeners to go away and just go and get a supermarket variety um, pill mm-hmm. because that's not going to cut it. Uh, that's just not going to be adequate in terms of getting the dose that we have used. Um, I tend not to talk about the product specifically mm-hmm. in an interview. And the reason for that is that we're studying an idea. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that we need, that people with psychiatric symptoms probably need more nutrients than what they're getting out of their food alone. Mm-hmm. There's lots of pro- reasons probably for that. Um, so, but I'm always happy to be contacted Mm. And and people can easily find us on yeah. the web. And no, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, it, I agree. It's the bigger picture that we're yeah, talking about here, anyway. It's, that's I'm, what I'm I always. Really, I don't like to get into the formula. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go buy some blueberries anyway. But. <laughs> you can do that. You can certainly do that. The, and it's the, not that that's not a bad thing. And, yeah. and and please don't think that I believe that the solution mm-hmm. to mental health crisis is to uh, just everyone take supplements. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. We need to. But what what our work does is that it places on the map the absolute critical importance of nutrition mm-hmm. in addressing mental health issues. And up until we were doing this research, you have to understand that most people would see it as irrelevant. It's hard to believe that people don't think that nutrients are relevant to brain health. We know it's important to cardiovascular health and mm-hmm. all of that. But when it comes to the brain, it's like, yeah, whatever. That brain, all it needs is some Prozac. Yeah. It needs some Ritalin. It doesn't need any nutrients. And yeah. it's it's still it just still surprises me that that is not an obvious connection for many people but that that just shows you how much we've been led down that chemical imbalance Mm. belief that that's the only way you can treat Mm. psychiatric disorders so what's going on here in terms of um 
our inputs into our bodies? You know, like, is it that over the decades, you know, like if we went back a hundred yeah. years ago, were people just eating better, or or is is it that we can now, you know, potentially use nutrients to help yeah. people with these issues, or That's, how has it changed over time? I guess it's so hard to know. That is such a good question, and it's so hard to know because our methods of evaluating mental illness have changed so much mm-hmm. over a very short period of time. So it's hard to know whether or not the rates of depression have dramatically increased right now relative to 100 years ago, mm-hmm. um, or are they the same? And yeah. that's because we've changed and refined and we've expanded the way we understand depression. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for, for me to really answer that question adequately. I think that we have changed what we eat in a very short period of time, and I, I think that plays a key role, and it's, it is definitely one of the elephants in the room mm. um, that's contributing to the epidemic of mental illness, mm. and that is the uh, introduction of foods that aren't foods. Mm. Processed food doesn't have any, nu- uh, you know, so nutrient poor. Mm. Energy dense gives you the calories that we need, but it certainly doesn't give you the nutrients that your brain needs. Mm. I mean, the, the brain is 2% of our body weight, but 20 to 25% of our metabolic needs. Mm. And so you're just not going to get that out of a Twinkie or out of a, yeah, you know, a sausage food. roll yeah. or a fast food. Um, it's just not going to be adequate yeah. enough to, that's the to thing give Because that's the thing that fascinates me is um, what is it that's happened to our, our society, you know, that back in the 50s or post-World War II, you know, that all of a sudden you get burger chains springing up. And, that's right. And you can drive through and conveniently pick up that's your right. hamburger and I your fries. And your soda, yeah, yeah, it's very convenient. Exactly. We're saving time, yeah, and um, and yet, what is it that we're putting into our bodies as opposed to, you know, my my wife's from England, and um, her father has had an allotment, yeah. which is basically a, a bit of ground, you know, that 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 family has had in their in yeah. their family for decades since World War Two, basically, and um, so he, o- over the decades, he's grown carrots and vegetables and all you know fresh natural Mm -hmm. food that she grew up that was what are we having well what's in the garden Mm -hmm. you know rather than let's go to a fast food exactly Um, exactly and even when we eat well or we think we're eating well we're probably not as well nourished as we as our grandparents were and there's a lot of data to support that showing that the food has become more nutrient poor and that's probably because we're selecting foods for how quickly they grow they're high yield how well they transport Mm -hmm. how well they store that they stay beautiful and red that you you know that they don't bruise that kind of thing and so i think that the detrimental side of that is that we're selecting food that is nutrient poor Mm -hmm. and even if you think you're eating well, like in terms of fruit and, veg- fruit and vegetables. And the other thing that's happened over that over that period of time is that our population has grown exponentially. And so we're having to feed more people um, on the planet than, than 100 years ago. And so we we have to be producing, mass producing food um, in order to feed all of these people. And so, again, the consequences of that are that what we're eating is just not probably nourishing mm. us as well as the mm. food that our ancestors ate. Yeah. So I think that's it's, an important piece of it as well. And some of us are just more than more vulnerable to to this nutrient depletion. So mm. I think some of us can, and I, I would count myself probably in that, can can eat you know probably poor 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 nutrition and be okay mentally and physically i mean it'll catch up eventually but i'm certainly i certainly don't see myself as being vulnerable and that's lucky and that's probably mm. lucky for the research because 
this is hard work. And so I've got to be, you know, on the ball all the time, not getting sick. So yeah. that's a pretty important part of it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in order to be able to just actually get the work done. But there are other people who are going to be more vulnerable to the nutrient depletion. Those are the ones we wonder whether or not the people with mental illness or the canaries in the coal mine, are they the ones who are are the ones the most vulnerable to these nutrient depletions? And mm -hmm. we should be paying attention to it and saying, holy cow, look at all these people, this growing number of people who are struggling with mental health issues. Mm. This, this, is a, this is a fire. We need to be paying attention because mm. it's potentially at the marking um, this, this absolute sub-nutritional um, intake of uh, optimal nutri nutrients. Mm. And well, it makes sense to me. And I'm actually um, I'm thinking of a different picture, almost an analogy, you know, and I've got a friend... And he's, he's, he had a car, and it was a normal petrol car, and then he bought a diesel car. And you know where I'm going with this story. He pulled up one day, and he put the wrong type of petrol, you know, into ah, the car. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a, a petrol car can't have diesel in it. It, yeah. it won't, it, I think it will start, and then it will just die, right. basically. Right. And it was, it was like a, comp you had to completely replace the parts, you know, that, yeah. that had the wrong fuel. And I just think it sounds like what you're saying is kind of similar, that you, if you put the wrong things into your body, it that it won't yeah. function the way that it's I meant like that. to, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. Exactly, yeah. it just won't function. And I think that's, that's what's happened, is that our bodies are just not functioning uh, how they should be yeah. because we're not feeding it appropriate foods. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, a lot of messages that have come through from when I grew up was that, um, you know, and you probably similar and heard about macronutrients, you know, making sure that you got adequate protein, f fats and, and carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And that's been the that's been the dialogue. And it's also been about calories. And no one has ever really talked about those micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals. They are the helpers. They're the ones that are required in order for every chemical reaction to occur in your body, mm. to make enzymes, to make neurotransmitters, to make hormones, all of those things, they need nutrients. And we've just ignored their importance. I mean, yeah, they're in food, but they're not in processed food, not right. in there. So, so let's dive deeper there because I've got four young children. Yeah. Um, Youngest is three, oldest is 10. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of age range. You know, when as a parent or as a, a person making choices about what we're eating, um, what sort of things should we be focusing on? <laughs> right. Um, and, and I guess the answer is stay away from the processed foods, right? Is that's that the a, simple? <laughs> that's a very simple message. It, it We're all biochemically different. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I hate to go down too, da too much down the rabbit hole of what should I eat. Yeah. Um, because some people really are allergic to certain food groups and some of them could, and certain foods that actually others are going to find nourishing, like tomatoes or... Mm. Um, or strawberries or other fruits or vegetables. But I think as a main message from our work and from the work that's been done by others is that if you can avoid those packaged and processed foods, the, what, what's often talked about as the, as the center of the supermarket and you shop around the edges, which is where you have all your fresh produce and you're ensuring that you're getting an, a, a plentiful amount of fruits and vegetables in your diet and that you're getting healthy fats you're getting an adequate amount of fish if you're not a vegetarian or vegan um, because one to two servings is probably what we all need in terms of getting appropriate levels of fatty acids um, then I think you're going to go a long way towards getting on the right track the other thing I would include would be nuts 
um, and avoid your, you know, reduction of your sugary drinks. There's no need for it. There's no nutrients in mm. Coca-Cola. Like mm. that's, it's not a food. Mm. It doesn't need to be incorporated into our diet. Um, water's fine. Uh, or milk, you know, other, you know, there are some, and I, I wouldn't even, I don't think, I think even the fruit juices we can probably stay away from and just eat the real fruit. Mm. Um, so it's called the, I mean, that's, that's quite consistent with the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. And that's what's got the most research in terms of the benefits for mental health. Right. And so Western diet, reduction of that, increased your intake of those foods associated with the mental, with the um, Mediterranean diet. And I think that in itself can go a long way. Mm -hmm. I've had lots and lots of comments on my TEDx talk uh, that where people have, have volunteered just saying, I changed my diet and it's been so amazing for my mental health. So I know it can work for some people, mm -hmm. but I just want to make sure that it's clear that it, this, this approach doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. And the nutrients that we study don't work for everybody, but we sure have seen a significant benefit for many, many people here in Christchurch and also internationally all over the world from people who have heard about our work um, try, gave, given it a go and then write back to us and tell us that mm. you know how thankful they are for the yeah. work that we're doing well it makes sense and you know your point about soft drinks as well you know yeah. just that there's not there's nothing good in them nothing. When you, um i did an experiment Zero. with my kids um <laughs> to show them this <laughs> because i've never it, it, basically i got a liter of a soft drink and then i put it into a pot and we watched it boil uh -huh. We boiled it, and yeah. so all the you know all the watery substance was gone, yeah. and all that was left was this sticky, gooey stuff. Oh, nice. And so now my kids are like, "That's what's in one liter." And it was actually fascinating how much was left. You know, you think it's just liquid, mm -hmm. but once you'd boiled away everything else, right. it was just this liquidy, gooey. It was, right. yeah, amazing. Apparently it's good for cleaning up um, uh, accidents. Drains and things. Oh, really? Yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah. I don't know but yeah. if it's true or not. But Yeah, no, that's good. Um, so just you mentioned your TEDx talk, and if people want to, what we'll do is put a link to sure. that in the yeah. show notes for this. Um, what was that like, giving that and um, the reaction to that? And yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a long story now, unfortunately. Um, it was an honor to be asked by Kyla to do the TEDx chalk mm -hmm. and uh, really thrilled to get invited because I know my topic is controversial and so to get onto a TEDx stage was um, was a, a really a, an amazing experience. The experience of working with her team was fantastic in terms of learning how to get your message across in a very short period of time mm -hmm. in a succinct way and um, overall one of the highlights of my career. And what's sad is that at the moment, um, I have a flag on my talk. I don't know if you know mm, that or not. I did know that, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and that I am fighting and um, with no success so far. Right. And um, with science, I'm trying my best to use evidence to fight the flag. Um, but they are currently not listening and not engaging and not interested in in uh, recognizing that what they've done is completely inappropriate mm -hmm. and is challenging my integrity as a scientist. Mm -hmm. And that is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you are getting close to a million views, right? We're getting so, there. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Will you have a celebration dinner when you get to that I number? I think that <laughs> would be good. Yeah, that'll be exciting. But on it, to be honest, I, it's to the point where I might consider taking it down because I don't like 
having um you know a flag on there that is suggesting that the work isn't scientific even mm. though they say to me it's not your science your science is fine um but we didn't like the way you did your message um we thought you were too sweeping in how you presented some of your statements right um but they don't know the research the way i know the research and that everything was fact-checked they say they fact-checked it but they mm. have i can't imagine how they did it because mm. Um, if they fact checked it, they'd realize that everything I said was accurate. Mm, so, yeah. oh. so what does the future hold for your research? And you know, right. what are you hoping? Where for? Where are we going forward? Well, we just keep collecting data. That's a really important part of what we do. Uh, we're not there yet in convincing the masses. We certainly haven't convinced the government that this is that they they should change the way they're treating mental illness in the community. I've I certainly do a lot of lobbying these days that I didn't do before. Um, a lot more social media contact than we did before. We're trying really hard to connect with people, mm -hmm. getting the message out there in a in a positive way. Um, I talk. I do a lot of. I spend a lot of time thinking about science communication and how to appropriately getting getting the message across. We're also interested in better understanding why, if it works, why does it work? And so we're exploring things like the microbiome. We're looking at genetics. We're looking at um, imaging. We're looking at whether or not there's any changes in the brain. Uh, so we've got a long way to go to mm. figure out who does this work for? Um, why doesn't it work for some people? Why does it work? Can we refine it? Are there other things that we can do? So there's a lot of opportunity here for science yeah. and exploration. And um, uh, yeah, that money limits us and my time. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and I know you've been helping Marcel from Tumanaco Wellness oh, yeah, Center as exactly. well because she was on a couple of weeks I ago. I know, I know. So yeah, it's good that you're able to um, support different organizations. Well, I'm and... excited about what they're doing because they're we're completely on the same wavelength that we both we all recognize that what we're doing right now is not helping enough people and and that people are getting worse with these treatments and that we do need to have a fundamental revolution in how we treat mental illness. Mm -hmm. Doing what we're doing right now is not good enough. Thinking that just giving people drugs is going to solve it, it's just not, it's ignoring the fact that lifestyle is playing such an important role in the expression of these conditions. Probably not for everyone, but certainly for a high percentage of them. Mm, yeah, well, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My it's pleasure. been fascinating to hear about the topic, but also just to trace it back, you know, even as a child in high school and your own family experiences and, yeah. and how that has sort of informed what you've ended right. up doing. Right. And I love some of the concepts that you've talked about, you know, that it can't be a one-on-one -on -one solution. It's actually bigger than that. We need, you know, a, a paradigm shift of thinking yeah, exactly. to be able to um, change the way that we um, look at what we consume. Exactly. Which sounds so basic, doesn't it? Like it does. what goes in is what comes out. Exactly. Like surely there's a connection. But I, know. Um, I, I hear what you're saying. So yeah, I just want to say thank you very much for joining yeah. me today. Oh, it's, I was, as you can tell, I love talking about this stuff. So yeah. I can talk for 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 forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, well, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Julia. I found it a fascinating topic. As you could tell with young children, I was really interested in what she had to say about the lifestyle choices that we're making in these days and in terms of the food that we take, you know, what goes in, what comes out. So it does make sense to me that there's a link between what we eat and how well our bodies are functioning. And thank you to those who are leaving ratings and reviews in iTunes or whatever podcast app you use to listen to this. 
For those of you who don't know, there is a Facebook page as well. If you search Seeds Podcast, you'll be able to find it. And there's a lot of videos there of some of the interviews that I've done, as well as some background and behind-the-scenes things that relate to the interviews. Until next time. Mm-hmm.